someone has penned a piece. I don't know the author, origin of this. It's entitled Before and After Falling in Love. And I'll read you a little part of it. It goes like this. Before falling in love, he said, you take my breath away. Afterwards, I feel like I'm suffocating. Before, she says, she loves the way I take control of the situation. After falling in love, she called me a controlling, manipulative egotist. Before, there was Saturday night fever. Afterwards, it's Monday night football. Before, he makes me feel like a million dollars. Afterwards, she says, I wish I had a dime for every stupid thing he's done. Before, there was a sound of music. Afterwards, there's a sound of silence. Before falling in love, roses were $60 a dozen. Afterwards, they're $1.50 a stem. Before, he's completely lost without me. Afterwards, why won't he ever ask directions? Before, time stood still. Afterwards, this relationship is going nowhere. Before falling in love, I can hardly believe we found each other. Afterwards, I can't believe I ended up with someone like you. Now, while there is some element of humor to those statements, there is a sobering aspect to these because too often these things are true in our relationships. And not necessarily just in marriage, but among family or friends or even brethren. But the real capacity to love is the ability to be able to love someone even after we've gotten to know them and understand their faults and their flaws and their failures. This morning we are concluding this series we've been engaged in from 1 Corinthians 13, Love the More Excellent Way. And our study this morning is simply titled, Love Never Ends. If you would turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 and this, read this one more time as we come to an end of this series of lessons. While you're turning there, let me join with Stephen and welcoming each one. We have a number of guests this morning. We're glad to have you in our number, and we hope that you'll come back and be with us on other occasions. It's great having Gabe Chavez, who is with us. Uh, if you don't know Gabe, he uh, is from, uh, where are you from? Costa Rica. Man, I had a senior moment there for a minute. I started to say Puerto Rico, and I knew that wasn't right. No, don't get him from Puerto Rico, Costa Rica. But um, Gabe is with us for the summer, and we're going to be working together, and he's going to be in an internship. He's going to be here for about 10 days, and then he's got to go back to Costa Rica uh, to renew his student visa, and then we'll be back at the end of May through August. And so we're excited to have Gabe, even though I don't remember where he's from, but I'm excited to have him and uh, get to know him even better. So I hope that you will look forward to that and uh, have Gabe in your home and uh, work this summer as we build relationships together. We're glad to have you this morning. We're going to think about 1 Corinthians 13 one more time in this series. The Apostle Paul said, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels but have not love, I am as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have, I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We want to camp on the phrase in verse 8 and the explanation following that love never ends. The first thing I would suggest from this text is that love knows no limit to its endurance. You see, in the opening remarks, I suggested a very common idea and emotion among many people today when it comes to love, that love has its limits. In fact, don't we sometimes say something like, you've got to draw the line somewhere, or there's only so much I can put up with. There's only so much I can take from you. And so we have the idea from a physical standpoint that love has limits. But God says there is no limit with love. That love can bear any insult, that it can withstand any injury, that it can suffer any disappointment. Love knows no limit to its endurance. Love always protects. One translation actually translates this word protects. In fact, some Bible scholars say this is the preferred rendering, and the Greek word properly denotes this, and it means to protect by covering, to conceal, to bear up under. It is translated by vine as forbear. Thayer says the word means to protect or to keep by covering, to preserve, to cover over with silence, to keep secret, to hide or to conceal. Such love, if this be the case, may suffer sometimes in silence. Or it may stand in the presence of a fault with its lips shut tight. It conceals injuries. I'm reminded of the Apostle Peter's statement in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 where he says, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love knows no limit to its endurance. It never ends. But then secondly in this text, he tells us that love knows no end to its trust. You think about that. A love that knows no limits or no end to its trust and I think this would apply, first of all, in our relationship to God. That we completely trust God. That God is love and God loves us and we love Him because He first loved us. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 5 and verse 11. He said, but let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. And let those also who love your name be joyful in you. Love and trust go together. 
When you have the kind of love we've been studying about for these past several weeks, the spiritual love of 1 Corinthians 13, there is a trust. It is a trust that absolutely accepts God and His Word, that believes completely in His promises, and has total confidence in His character, that love completely trusts God. But also, it applies in a relationship to our fellow man. Now, I'm not naive. I recognize that sometimes people are not honest. And sometimes people will let us down. Yet, love believes the best. Love does not automatically react with suspicion and with distrust and with misgivings. Love, someone said, love sees people not as they are, but as they can be. It is too easy for us in a world that has become so cynical and distrusting to look at everything that is said, everything that is done, and to look at people with some kind of a jaundiced eye that they're out to get us, that you can't trust them. Love knows no end to its trust in relationship to God, in relationship to our fellow men, and relationship to our brethren. And this especially ought to be true in our relationship in the family of God. We have a special bond. We have a unique relationship. We have an unparalleled kinship that is in Christ. In Romans chapter 12 and verse, verse 10, he said, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. There are different words we know for the word love. In fact, the word that we're studying in 1 Corinthians 13 is agape, but it's a different word here. And the word for love in Romans 12 is the word for family love. And we often talk about how the church is a family, that God is our father and Jesus Christ is our elder brother, and, and we're brothers and sisters. And so that we should have that filial affection for one another like you would in your own family. That's what this verse is saying. Have that affection, have that brotherly love, and because of that, that we give honor or in honor, give preference to one another because love trust. Our love is a brotherly love that is birthed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have a love and a trust. We must be a people of trust, and our love must believe the very best about one another. We ought not to automatically think the worst of a brother of Christ, that we ought to have trust and think the best. And so love knows no end to its trust. But... This text tells us that love knows no fading of its hope. Jesus believed that no man was hopeless. Think about the ministry of Jesus and, and the people that he interacted with and talked to and taught that the religious leaders of the day would have nothing to do with. The sinful woman in Luke 7 or the woman taken in adultery in and, and John 8 or the Jewish rabbi Nicodemus in John chapter 3, or the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, that all of these people that others might look down upon, and you could add to that list Zacchaeus and, and Luke 19. I mean, the list is endless when you think about it, isn't it? The kind of people that Jesus interacted with, the kind of people for which the religious leaders and the people today looked at as hopeless, 
as the downcast of society or the downtrodden of society or, or the people that can't be trusted? Love knows no fading of its hope. Love hopes. And not only that, the Bible teaches us that our God is a God of hope. In the book of Romans in chapter 15, and in verse 13, Paul wrote, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is a God of hope. I almost made this lesson a little longer yesterday when I put in my Bible program, God plus hope. Because there's a lot of verses in the Bible, and especially in the Psalms, that connect hope with God. Our God is a God of hope. And that God looks down upon us in that way. Love knows no fading of its hope. And because God is love, then man is never without hope. You think about that. That no person... No human being is ever without hope because God is love and God is a God of hope. Isn't that a wonderful thing to contemplate? And therefore, we can not only look at others, but we can look at ourselves. Know that there is always hope because there is God. Love never ends. Love can outlast anything. That's what the text says. Think about that a minute. Love can outlast the disappointment of people who let us down. That love will overcome hate. That love will vanquish bitterness. That love will defeat envy and jealousy. And people will let us down from time to time. But it can outlast that. Love can outlast anything. Love can outlast the discouragement of, of circumstances. That love can survive even the bleakest of circumstances and, and situations and problems. Neither fate nor bad fortune can overcome love. And not only that, love can outlast the dismay of our own shortcomings. You know, sin is debilitating, isn't it? It is draining and it is discouraging. We briefly talked about that in our young adult class this morning and how, how that sin and how it brings guilt and oftentimes depression in our lives. And that just robs us of so many things in life. And it robs us of the joy that we have and the peace that we can have with God, our relationship with Christ. And yet, when we think about how love cannot last anything and how love bears with triumphant fortitude even the dismay of our own shortcomings, and we all fall short from time to time. We all make mistakes, don't we? And yet we don't have to beat ourselves up because of those things. That we can come to the God of love and God will forgive us. And his love can outlast our shortcomings. And the kind of regard we ought to have for ourselves can outlast that. That we can bear with triumphant fortitude. You see, what he's saying in his text is that love never fails love love just never fails it is absolute in its permanency in this text as we read the last part and we haven't touched these last few verses and so we want to spend our rest of our time there that paul is pointing out something that these first century christians were coming to understand 
that dispensations change. Now, in standing back from it, and we look back to the the patriarchal dispensation, the mosaical dispensation, and our in the dispensation of Christ, we see that, but they were in the midst of that change. And many of these Jews had given that up. And, and so here is this change. And then there have come miraculous gifts through the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in chapter 12, and as we studied in the very first lesson about this, our theme title that goes back to the end of chapter 12, that there was a problem in the church of Corinth over spiritual gifts. These nine miraculous gifts that are listed in chapter 12. And evidently there were some that were coveting the speaking of tongues as, as being more important. Well, he says the miraculous gift of tongues has ceased. Or, or the gift of prophecy, that's come to an end. And I believe the knowledge here, he's not talking about knowledge we get through our study, but it's miraculous knowledge that is talked about earlier in chapter 12, that this miraculous knowledge received by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will be discontinued. And so this, this miraculous era in which we are in right now, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, that will come to an end. That, that, that's, that's not going to last forever. But he says, I tell you what will last forever. Love will last forever. That love is absolute in its permanency. Not only that, it is absolute in its completeness. I've been told that the city of Corinth was famous for its manufacture of mirrors. The modern mirror that we enjoy today is, it has a perfect reflection. But that did not emerge until 13 centuries later. The mirror of that day, the first century, was really made of a highly polished type of metal. And so if you think about looking into some metal that's been polished, the reflection was imperfect. It was not a very good reflection. Their reflection and their perception, he's saying, is incomplete. And so as they're in the middle of this particular time, and you don't have the complete revelation of the New Testament yet. In fact, a lot of people believe that 1 Corinthians might have been the first book that was actually written. And so they wouldn't have had access to the Bible as we have it today. In fact, even copies of the Old Testament scriptures um, were few and far between. Not everybody had access to those. And so when you think about that, their reflection of things and their perception of God's will was incomplete. But what do we have today? We can see perfectly. We have the complete law of liberty. And so our perception of things today is different. Now, they may be dulled or diminished or diluted, but we can rely on love in its absolute perfection. That never fails. The Bible says it does. It said it never fails in its absolute completeness. And then it never fails in its absolute supremacy. He ends this chapter, this great treatise on love, but talking about these three great qualities, faith, hope, and love. And certainly we talk a lot about faith, and we should. Faith is a great quality. By it we come to God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith is necessary for salvation. Faith is imperative to Christian growth. And yet, compared to love, love is greater. He says in the text, doesn't he? Hope, hope is indispensable in Christian endurance. 
I mean, without hope, there, there is no incentive to go on. There, there's nothing to look forward to. I mean, it is through hope and the eye of faith coupled together that we see beyond this life, don't we? And we see beyond whatever problems and challenges and things that we have to deal with. And through that eye of faith and through the hope that we have, that desire plus expectation, we can see heaven. And we can read the book of Revelation and know that one day we can go to heaven. We have hope. What would, what would our lives be without hope? It's indispensable. And yet, compared to love, he says in this text that love is greater. That love outshines faith and hope and the spiritual firmament, just as the sun outshines the moon and the splendid planets that revolve around them. That's how great love is. Because you see, one day, faith will be lost in sight. And hope will be realized in heaven, but love will live on, won't it? Love is eternal. Love is supreme. Love is sovereign. Love is the crowning quality on which all other virtues are based, and all right actions are motivated, and which mature Christians find fulfillment. Love never fails. It just never ends. Could we have picked a better theme this year, love more, give more? When you look at what the Bible says about love, I don't know, some of you may think this has been a long series. This is my ninth lesson from 1 Corinthians 13. You know, we could actually probably have nine more. <laughs> I mean, there is so much in the Bible about love. But I hope these nine lessons have been helpful to us to think about the greatness of love, that it is the greatest of these. And to think that friendships may be fractured and marriage vows may be violated and relationships may rupture, but love never ends because God is love and because he lives. And it's through this unending love that we can reach toward him and we can get a taste of it and we can imbibe that love and we can seek to become like him. These lessons, I hope you have noticed, have not been a theoretical treatise of 1 Corinthians 13. They are practical in their nature. They apply in our relationships as husbands and wives and parents and children. They apply in our relationships with our fellow man on a daily basis. They apply, apply in our relationships in our church family. They are so applicable. I want to close with a story. That's one of my favorite stories, favorite love stories, that encapsulates a lot of the attributes that we've been talking about in these nine lessons. And it's written by S.I. Kosher, who wrote this in Collier Magazine. If you've never heard of that, it's because it goes back to 1943. And the setting is during the Second World War. And Kosher tells a story about a Lieutenant John Blanchard who was stationed in the uh, Army base in Pensacola, Florida at the time. And one day, Blanchard wanders into the base library, and he, begins, he picks up a book, and he starts talking about it. He got interested in the book, but what got him even more interested was not the book that he was reading, but it was the notes and the margin of the book. 
And the insight of the person that had written those, he noticed it looked like a feminine handwriting. And so he flipped to the front of the book and started looking. And there was a woman's name there. And you can tell this goes back to the early part of the 20th century. Her name was Hollis Maynell. And so he began doing a little searching and found out that she lived in upstate New York. And he wrote her a letter. And turned out, after he wrote the letter, the next day he was shipped overseas for a year. She got the letter. She answered it. And they began corresponding over a year. They began to realize that this romance by mail was causing them to fall in love with one another. At one point, Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused and said if he really cared, it would make a difference what she looked like. The day finally arrived when he returned from Europe, and they were meet at Grand Central Station at 7 o'clock. She said, you will recognize me by the rose that I'm wearing on my lapel. And he said, you will recognize me by this book that I'm still carrying from that library that is a blue-bound cover book. Let me read to you what happened in Lieutenant Blanchard's own words. He said, a young woman was coming toward me. Her figure was long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers, and her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. In her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curved her lips. Going my way, sailor, she murmured. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her, and then I saw her. She was standing almost directly behind the girl wearing the red, red rose. A woman well past 40. She had gray hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was quickly walking away, and I felt as though I was being split in two. So keen was my desire to follow the girl, yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned mine and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible, her gray eyes warm and, and a kindly twinkle. I did not hesitate. My fingers gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify him to me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious, something even perhaps better than love, a friendship for which I have been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders and saluted and held out a copy of the book to the woman. And even though, as I spoke, I felt choked by disappointment, I said, I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Miss Maynell. I'm so glad you could meet me. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened in a tolerant smile. She said, I don't know what this is about, son, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. And she said, if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. Well, I would say Lieutenant Blanchard passed the test, wouldn't you? And every time I tell this story, I have to ask myself, would I have passed the test? You see, the love we've been studying about in these nine lessons is an unselfish love 
whose focus is on the one loved, regardless of the outward qualities or the circumstances that may divert our attention. The Bible love, spiritual love, true love, unlike what we see in the world today so many times, is the true nature of the heart. And it is seen in our response toward the unattractive, those that are sometimes unfriendly and sometimes disagreeable. It is said, tell me whom you love, and I will tell you who you are. The wise man says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And so what I have to ask myself when I read 1 Corinthians 13, who am I? Am I that person described with all of those 15 qualities we studied of love? But it's not theoretical and it's not academic. It reflects itself in situations with people I meet. With my brethren, with my friends, with my family. Do I have the love of God? I have to admit to you there are times that I fail the test. And I'm embarrassed before God when I do. But you know, love that never fails. We are so blessed that we have a God. That through our shortcomings and our failure to love as we ought from time to time. Isn't it great that God's love is constant? That God's love never fails. And we can always come back to the God of love. And so one more time this morning we extend an invitation. To each one that is here this morning to come to the God of love. If you're already a Christian, I would encourage you as well as myself to draw closer to him and to work harder to develop these qualities that we have studied and to be what we ought to be in our lives. If you're not a Christian, would you accept the God of love and his gospel through Jesus Christ to believe on Jesus, to repent of your sin, to confess your allegiance to him, to be baptized for the mission of your sins, to allow the blood of Jesus to wash away every sin, and then to be inducted into the family of God, born again. And to be able to join hands and hearts with others that love God, will love you. And together we can walk this pathway to heaven. We can serve you. We can minister to you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and sing.